Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast, recording remotely still. Today is April 7th, and I'm really excited to be here with David Rose, uh, who is a ultra-rare disease advocate, works at Rare Revolution magazine, and he himself has a rare disease. That is, David can correct me if my stats are off, but according to best estimates, about one in 300 million. Um, I've known David for several years now, so I'm, I'm very fortunate to have him not just as a, a colleague and someone who works in the genetics rare disease field, but also as a friend. And today, hoping to cover a number of different things, his experience as the only person in the UK um, with his particular rare condition, uh, some of his work as a speaker and an ambassador to Great Ormond Street, one of the premier um research organizations and um, children's hospitals here in the UK, um, and potentially some discussion around how life has changed due to COVID-19. So David, it's great to have you on the podcast and thanks so much for taking the time. No, you're welcome. Thank you, Patrick, for inviting me and um, looking forward to seeing what you've got to ask me today. Great. So I wonder if you could just start by giving everyone a, a little bit of background on your story um, and what brings you here today. Yeah, sure. So um, as Patrick's already said, I've got a condition called occipital horn syndrome, uh, which is classed as an ultra rare disease affecting roughly one in 300 million people worldwide. Um, I've been working in the rare disease space for just over, well, coming up to two years now for Rare Revolution magazine, which is a digital rare disease magazine uh, coming out quarterly. Um, previous to that, I've been volunteering for Great Ormond Street Hospital for the last uh, about seven years now, um, of which I was a patient when I was growing up. So um, obviously wanted to give something back. So I didn't have the money to necessarily donate to the charity, but I thought I can give my time. So I've been doing after dinner speaking engagements. Um, the, split, the talks are kind of split into two. So half of it tends to be about how the money that's raised from the big companies, um, where that money goes and how it's used. And then the second half, tends to be uh, my story about the services I use at the hospital, um, all the operations I've had and kind of where I'm up to now. So you were recently part of a, a really pretty popular online campaign called I Am Number 17. Um, for those of us who aren't so familiar with some of the challenges of the rare disease world and, and what this I Am Number 17 refers to, would you mind just explaining how you got involved in that and, and why the number 17 is so important in rare disease? Sure. So the um, I Am Number 17, um, so for those of you who are unaware, um, a rare disease affects one in 17 people in the UK, and that's her, hence where the name comes from. Um, obviously, the stats vary from country to country, but it's one in 17 in the UK. Um, that was an interesting campaign that um, I took part in. The 16 other people that were involved with me, um, we've been called change makers. So everyone has a rare disease in that uh, group of 17 people. Um, and all of us are active in the rare disease space, whether that's kind of campaigners or um, advocates or after dinner speakers. We've all kind of got our own um, element that we what we bring to the table. When would you do some of your public speaking, what kind of topics do you like to cover and what are the main messages you like to get across, especially when you're speaking to people who maybe don't um, live with a rare disease or have the, have the experience caring for someone who does? Um, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I do a few different kind of areas. So for the um, Great Ormond Street speaking that I do, that tends to be, uh, as I said about, you know, kind of where the fundraising goes towards and how that helps benefit the charity. Um, the side of obviously talking about growing up, spending a lot of time in hospital, um, the challenges that come with that. So 
um, this is for the Great Ormsley talks, but also for kind of my general rare disease talks, it's kind of forms quite a big conversation. So, um, you know, there's, there's, ba there's battles of, your, you know, your education, spending lots of time in hospital, all the operations that you have, um, using the, the school, uh, within the hospital is quite an interesting perspective, um, kind of growing up the kind of work, uh, balance is also very difficult for patients with rare diseases, um, especially those with kind of hidden conditions, which is what mine is a mostly hidden rare disease. So more often than not, I'm kind of always hiding some sort of pain or some sort of problem that's going on. Um, so for employers, it's very difficult to really kind of understand what someone's going through. And obviously, as I already said, the rare disease affects one in 17 people. So actually, if you think about a school classroom or an office, uh, whether you realise it or not, you're bound to have other people in that office with a rare disease or maybe their partner or their parents might have a rare disease. So actually, um, collectively, we're not actually that rare. You're rare in your own rights, but actually when you put all of the um, the patient numbers together, it's not that rare. And I'm pretty sure that if you put every rare disease patient together, I think it would form the third biggest country in terms of population. So actually, that changes the perspective a little bit. It does. Yeah, it yeah. definitely does. And, and how has it so how has it impacted you personally? I mean, I know you actually, for a little while, were diagnosed with a different rare condition, right? So someone at some point um, got it wrong, or maybe didn't have the technology to, to detect the genetic variant that was specific to your rare disease. Is that right? Yeah. So um, when I was about to, um, at Great Ormond Street, they kind of, they said, oh, I think that you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is um, kind of similar to what I have. So Ehlers-Danlos is now becoming more well-known. Uh, when I was two or even older than that, um, nobody seemed to have any idea about it. But I think now it's actually been one of the few rare diseases where I think people have realised that um, it's actually not as rare as you think it is. And actually, it's just massively underdiagnosed. Um, it's very common, well, not very common, but it's more common than people realise. Um, so that was my original diagnosis when I was yeah about two um, at Great Ormond Street. They never said that that's definitely what I have, but they said that's probably a, a kind of reasonable working diagnosis. Um, and then it wasn't until I got a little bit older where, so my kind of health always goes up and down. So I might have some periods where I'm not doing too bad uh, in inverted commas and other times it can be horrendous and it's you can't really ever predict it. Um, but I'm 31 now. So when I was 20, uh, 25, I think it was where I started having uh, the genetics testing done at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Um, I think the doctors realized that I didn't really fit this kind of uh, right. diagnostic criteria for, for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And that's why they looked into it further to see whether there was um, a genetic component to it. And obviously there is. And and at that point, when you received your diagnosis for occipital horn syndrome, what what did you do next? I mean, you there probably wasn't a ton. I think I've heard you say before that a, around a quarter of the research papers that are published on occipital horn are are about you. Um, so <laughs> there probably wasn't wasn't a ton at the time yeah. when you were diagnosed, was there? No. So that obviously that was you know uh, five or six years ago now. So. Um, there's not a huge amount of literature on it, which is a shame. Um, obviously, I wouldn't expect there to be loads. Um, there's a doctor in the States who I may maybe try and go and see at some point. Um, he has some sort of knowledge uh, of the condition. Um, I mean, it's like anything. Most doctors, you, you, you know, from my work and from my 
kind of network of rare disease advocates everyone is always told or oh, try not to google this or try not to kind of read too much into it but i mean as soon as like my mum and dad and i left that appointment i think we all were on our phones googling it <laughs> seeing seeing yes. what it was because it's something that i've never heard of before we kind of we got our heads around what Ehlers-Danlos syndrome was just about um but obviously this is a new condition none of us have ever heard of it before um so we had to try and learn a little bit um i've always tried to not kind of google everything because i think that it can maybe get a bit more scary when you start reading into the more uh the more serious sides of it so obviously the reality of it is unfortunately some rare conditions you know the life expectancy isn't that great um and i remember seeing somewhere that i think that the, the eldest patient they had recorded was 57 but um with statistics like that it's very difficult because because it's so rare and so unheard of you know you can't really build a good estimate of what a, a reasonable life expectancy would be because if you had i don't know like half a million patients you know for a common condition you can start to use the data a little bit easier but because it's so um unheard of and also it might be that actually more people have this condition but haven't been diagnosed with it so actually the life expectancy side of things although it's kind of something to consider uh i don't know really how much of it you can take seriously just yet but i mean yeah, yeah. It, it, it's certainly scary having a condition especially at the start when you're so unfamiliar with what it actually is did you find yourself um drawn to connecting with other people around the world who also have occipital horn syndrome as well was that something that you sought out or, or were you more kind of content to work it out yourself and with your doctors um so when i first had it i didn't necessarily start looking for people straight away um yeah. it would have probably been maybe a year or two years after that i started kind of maybe more consciously looking um it took a little while then i found um a couple of guys um who have the condition so there was a guy in germany that i speak to from time to time um and a guy in the states but he ended up um actually having something different he the doctors thought he had occipital horn syndrome um but it was actually something um slightly different but still very similar um so obviously as i said it's kind of very rare so i actually have um spoken to someone very very recently in uh in ireland who actually has the condition so now there's two of us that um are, are kind of local to me um i think it's important to be able to kind of share share stories or to share concerns or share any research that you kind of come across but um i guess i kind of were was used to having this kind of being one of the only people with it i think i kind of got used to that so um but i can certainly see the benefit of of the connecting with people and seeing kind of if they have any ideas or not necessarily with treatments but you know different doctors to maybe go and see or different you know different diets to try or anything like that i can definitely see the benefit yeah i mean i, I was going to ask about what is the knowledge sharing that's helpful because one of the, one of the things that crossed my mind is if there's a specialist somewhere in the world that somebody's had a really good experience with or or when new research papers come out um you know working together to read them and understand them or or something as you said as kind of da daily um simple but essential as are there dietary changes and those kind of things that help um yes i mean the there's not like i said obviously there's really not an awful lot of things about, out there for us um 
there's a, there's a doctor in the states um i mean the doctors that i see here in london and cambridge they now are kind of learning a little bit some of it's through me and some of it they've kind of gone and done their own thing which is really um it's really great when doctors take that extra initiative to look at something new um right i'm obviously very lucky that i'm seeing at some of the biggest hospitals with the big research center so i'm i am aware of how lucky i am um you know even if the doctors don't initially know what something is uh, they're doing their best to try and learn about it and that's all you can really ask for um there's no treatments as such for this condition so um as i mentioned about the ls danos syndrome it's kind of the the way that it affects you is still very similar um it used to be considered an older subtype of the one of the rare um eds variants um so it's still kind of very similar in terms of connective tissue and the the way that it affects your organs is still very similar um the hypermobility aspect of it um so actually although there's not an awful lot of literature on ohs there's still um obviously lots of literature on ehlers danlos syndrome you can kind of use a lot of that um and kind of turn it into something for yourself really yeah that makes sense what what is the thing that that people most misunderstand about um life with a rare disorder or, or maybe to flip it around what's the what is the thing that you both in you know, in your per- personal capacity and speaking engagements you do or through rare revolution magazine that you try to raise awareness of that that maybe the general public um doesn't know or or doesn't quite fully understand uh that's a good question i think uh maybe sort of in two kind of prongs i guess it's the any well most people with a rare disease will have either the pain or fatigue element um or both um normally both the i think that the biggest thing where i think that we're misunderstood a lot of the time is that um it's a bit like when someone says they have a migraine when in reality it's a headache or if someone says um, they've got um, a flu when in reality it's a cold it's that kind of analogy so i think that um most rare diseases obviously tend to cause an awful lot of fatigue and that's certainly my biggest thing so i think that's where it's something where i really wish people would understand it more so lots of the time you can kind of take strong painkillers and it can kind of combat that side of the pain uh, element whereas there's actually nothing that you can do for fatigue you know you can sleep for days and hours you know it won't do anything that underlining fatigue is probably the most uh, debilitating thing um especially in terms of like if i'm going back to kind of older workplaces where they didn't understand it or when i was at university or studying at sixth form that's where i think it impacted me the most and i think people um that are not familiar with the rare disease world and how uh patients with chronic or rare conditions i think the fatigue thing is probably a huge misunderstood area because of because it's so hidden as well so yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine in growing up in school, as you say, or in, in workplace, if people don't try to understand or empathize, then, then they might just think you're, you're lazy or something like that, right? When really it's a physical, um, physical thing that's happening to you. Correct. I, I think as well. So, um, probably an, uh, like an example that I try and use is that, uh, so day to day, I don't really use anything. Like I use a stick sometimes, um, and I use wheelchairs kind of like after surgery, but that's about it. So um, if you kind of look at me at first glance, you'd see like a young-ish man, like walking down the street, you wouldn't necessarily think an awful lot, but like, you know, I'm I'm entitled to use uh, a blue badge for the car or uh, to sit in the kind of priority areas on public transport. So I think a lot of the time, 
um there's a kind of cultural thing where you know it should be seen that like that young man should get up for that old lady uh, but sometimes I need the chair just as much and that's kind of um I think I've seen that quite a lot on social media where people have been kind of uh, they've had a lot of abuse from the public for you know using their blue badges I think that um people have quite a, a strange perception of what disability actually is it's not just you know it's not just someone using a wheelchair or someone using a stick it can be it can be that obviously but also it's a lot more than just that yeah of course so so can you tell us about the the mission and what you do at rare revolution magazine um i've been a subscriber for the magazine for a while you guys put out i i believe it's about monthly and it's usually a new focus every month and this month is actually um about nhs staff or medical staff in general and and responses to COVID-19 but I think it'd be great to just give an overview of what the how the magazine got started what it's all about and and some of the the mission and your role there. Sure so um the, the magazine's been going for three years now um and it was set up by uh two of my bosses so um Nicola's um son has a rare skin condition called xeroderma pigmentosum um it's called XP um they've had their charity group for I think maybe five or six years. I can't remember exactly how long that's been around for, um, but they've been working on that. Um, they realised that there wasn't a rare disease magazine that existed, so they set the magazine up. Um, it's a digital magazine which comes out quarterly. So as you've already said, Patrick, it comes with different themes. So we've had ones on um, oncology, uh, workplaces, um, ultra-rare conditions, uh, employment with rare disease, just about everything. So uh, the one that's coming out um, for this edition is on uh, people and places. So, you know, the roles within the NHS and just the hospitals, uh, genetics, rare disease centres and the people that make that happen. Um, so, yeah, that's what we've been doing there. Um, and within my role at Rare Revolution, it's a little bit of everything, but um, it's a kind of de- business development role that I do. Most of us are battling some kind of day-to-day change as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. How how are you seeing, either through the stories that you all are, are writing and hearing through Rare Revolution or you personally, how, how is this different for um, rare disease patients? Um, is it, is it, are there some fundamental differences that, you know, people who don't have the same life experience won't fully understand? I think uh, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people... Um, Obviously, the whole the whole world is is going through different changes at the moment in response to this. Um, I think that in many ways, um, rare disease patients or chronic condition patients are, are probably actually uh, better set up for it than uh, than others because actually we're kind of used to um, social distancing sometimes, and we're used to spending long periods of time in even hospital or, or at home. Uh, you know. So it's hard to explain how to, what I'm trying to say, but I think that um, we've become accustomed to living differently. So, uh, you know, there's been periods in my time where I spent months in hospital. Uh, I spent weeks on end at home after surgery, not being able to go outside. So actually, although that's been different periods of my life, I'm probably more used to it in some ways. Um, I guess in slightly different perspective, uh, I work from home anyway, aside from going to conferences and, and different meetings. But actually, me working from home previous to this has actually been helpful because now it hasn't been so much of a reality shock because, I mean, I, 
friends of mine and people that I see and are finding it quite difficult because they're used to being in a busy office and they're used to kind of the commute to work and the kind of banter you have at work and everything like that's changed now so you know their lifestyle is completely different whereas you know for people like me that live a quieter life um, and obviously working from home anyway used to spending long periods of time being unwell um, I think that for me the actual change isn't as much as some people I think yeah. that the, the, the COVID-19 is obviously scary in the sense of the impact it has on rare disease patients. But in terms of my, my, my personal, um, like, ch- I haven't found it as much of an adjustment as maybe some people might have had done. Are you doing any speaking engagements remotely now through, um, you know, through Great Ormond Street or otherwise to, to talk about these issues or any other ones? Um, so the, the Great Ormond Street stuff, not so much. Um, I'm always kind of looking to do more speaking engagements anyway. So um, obviously I've already said that the stuff that I do for Great Ormond Street, but also I do a lot of things at uh, general kind of rare disease events, uh, speaking about my life. But the uh, obviously because of the travel restrictions and all the distancing that's taking place, the couple of the places that I was meant to be speaking um, in the States have obviously been postponed for a while. Right. Uh, I don't know what's happening with that. I think it'll be probably cancelled and then it'll be, it'll come back at some point um i'm always in the market to do things digitally so uh i think i'm going to try and see if i can get some more speaker engagements uh you know over zoom and skype that's still a possibility i think that the way that uh rare disease events taking place now it will have to be virtual so i think that over the next few weeks and months we'll see a lot of the kind of big conferences that uh, normally take place i think they'll probably be taking place digitally Yes, we had a um, we had a workshop that uh, we had planned to run on April first uh, in London, and we have another one that's planned for April twenty third. But obviously, about uh, three or four weeks ago, um, you know, we realized that it wasn't going to be feasible to run it in London, so we very rapidly changed plans to run it completely remotely. And and actually, I felt like there's a silver lining to this, which is that it completely levels the playing field in terms of who can access these kinds of things. So if you have an in-person workshop, then it means people who are fatigued that day or who have a um, compromised immune system based on a condition that they have um, becomes that much more challenging to get there. So having the ability to actually do things fully remotely is is in some ways a, a really great enabler. And, and maybe that's a lesson that we can take out of this to actually, um, you know, just put that hat on first and ask is this something we could do remotely without having people taking trains across the country or or having to um you know spend hours in transit just to be there in person yeah i think it's a, it's a good point and obviously um at the rare disease uh, events obviously there are lots of patients that attend them and actually uh whether they're kind of speaking or whether they're going there as a delegate the um the exhaustion that kind of comes after is maybe something that people wouldn't expect so uh i know personally for me when um i'm doing various speaker engagements it's 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 mentally tiring anyway to, to concentrate and to do the networking afterwards but actually it's the you know the the uh the travel time and the kind of the the day or two after i'm still recovering from that and so that's very common for for many people so i think actually um obviously it's, a, it's great that technology has come on so much now that we can do things remotely and we can you know listen in things afterwards you know we, we can record you know like this podcast and we can do other conferences you can listen to it after it's taken place i think that's probably how we're gonna have to do things for certainly for the foreseeable anyway 
Do you think that this is going to be a kind of kick in the right direction for healthcare institutions like the NHS or or other or research or otherwise? Do you think we're going to start seeing more adoption of, you know, can patients can see their electronic health records or or testing record online? Are you are you seeing any evidence of that or do you think that might start to happen? Uh I I haven't had any sort of experience of that as such yet. I think that um, along the same sort of lines, obviously the uh, the general kind of clinics that I attend normally, uh, obviously they've all been postponed because uh, I'm in the the high risk group of some way, um, so that I'm they're not doing any appointments in hospital anymore really, unless it's absolutely critical uh, to have it seen. So some of my patients, some of my um, appointments are now over the phone. Um, I think that again, that is such a simple way of doing something, but um, it's not really as good as maybe that face-to-face interaction that you probably really want um but it's great just a simple phone call at least we're still kind of in contact with our healthcare professionals i think that um obviously things are going to have to change now um no one you know we we get told maybe june but no one really knows how long this is going to go on for um and the reality of it is even once we are kind of inverted commas going back to normal it's still going to take weeks and months after that for things to kind of fully go back to how they were, or if indeed they might not go back to how they were. Um, but That's I think right. in terms of how hospitals will change, I think that uh, obviously I've kind of seen through various networks that people are having their appointments cancelled or, you know, for those that are still going into hospital at the moment, it's a very scary time because, you know, hospitals seem a bit of an eerie place at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think in general, somewhere that you want to avoid if you, unless you absolutely have to be there, right? Great. Well, well, David, I know I've had you on the call for a while. I think just to close out here, it would be really great to um, get your thoughts for anyone who's listening that is affected by a rare disease or thinking about getting into advocacy work, um, where you recommend they get started um, and where they could have a big impact going forward. Sure. So um, obviously, I think that depending on where, you, where you're based, um, always check out the, the various um, organizations that exist. So whether if that's in the UK, check out um, Genetic Alliance, Cambridge Rare Disease, Find a Cure, obviously our magazine, Rare Revolution, or if it's in the States, Nord, Global Genes, all these big organizations that exist to, to help people and to signpost them to the right direction, whether that's to find uh, various healthcare things or advice or for to find other rare disease groups that exist. Um, I think that when you have a rare condition, it's uh, it's entirely up to you how you want to manage it. So if you want to kind of dip in and out of it, that's cool. If you want to be hugely engaged in it and read all the papers and speak at events, listen to things, that's fine. I think the the main point is that it's, you do what you feel is best and having a health condition is very personal. So you can have two people with the same condition maybe like haemophilia or something like that they will react to it completely differently and it's there's no right or wrong way of um getting involved in advocacy i think it's entirely what you feel comfortable with and i think that um obviously all of us that are kind of uh in the advocacy world we are we are doing it around our own commitments whether that's family life or uh, work life or studying or wherever that may be and also that you have to you have to appreciate that your health will go up and down so you as much as i like to do what i can i will have blips and i have to take a back seat and you've always got to put your health first above any kind of advocacy work really 
Yeah, great. That's excellent. And I think just to, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that stuck with me that you said earlier is just highlighting this point about um, the the invisible part of many of these conditions that just because it might seem from the surface level that um, someone's not struggling with anything, it, it doesn't mean that there's not something else going on under the surface. So whether you're affected personally or, or just out in the world interacting with other people, I think it's worth bearing that kind of empathy point in mind that you, you never really do know um, what's what's going on under the surface. Yeah, that's it. And you've, you've hit the nail on the head that I think it's just important to be aware and just to try and support others when you can. <laughs> 